One framework that's made the biggest impact in my marketing career is the Jobs to Done framework. On the surface level, it's a simple framework to understand. People hire products to help them accomplish a job in their life. For example, I'm hiring this can of pop right now to quench my thirst. Not sponsored by Coke. Understanding what your customers are hiring your product to do is a true power-up. It can help you educate people on how your product can help them better than your competitors. And that's exactly what Isha Oranjo, CEO of Demand Maven, did for one of her clients. With her team's help, they grew their revenue by 10 times in just two years. But I would say research and jobs to be done is at the core of pretty much anything and everything that we do. Even when we do paid acquisition, for example. But through this very big effort, I mean, we saw trials triple. We saw a 20% lift in activation rate overall. And I think my, my favorite stat in the first round was a 4x lift in growth. And, you know, obviously, like there was a lot that went into that. In this Marketing Pops episode, you'll learn first how marketers can use the Jobs to be Done framework to help improve their marketing. Second, a real world example of how Asia used the Jobs to be Done framework with one of her clients. Third, how to avoid chasing the shiny new marketing trend. And fourth, how to build more confidence as a marketer. And before we start, I've created a power-up cheat sheet that you can download, fill in, and apply jobs to be done to your marketing. Go to marketingpowerups.com to get it now or find that link in the description and show notes. Are you ready? Let's go! Marketing Power-Ups! Ready? Go! Here's your host, Ramley John! One of the power-ups we're going to be talking about today, you really big is a job to be done framework. Can you share the story uh, of how you came across this? Well, what was the problem you were facing? And uh, how did you come across this, this wonderful framework that I also love and I believe marketers should be using as a part for their marketing? I had the very, I think, unique experience, maybe actually not that unique, but I had a, I feels, it feels unique where I actually learned it from another really well-known marketer in the space, Claire Sullentrop, uh, who, depending on the time of this recording, you will have had her co-founder, Gia mm. Laudi, uh, on the podcast as well. But Claire and I um, both lived in Atlanta. Um, she, has, she has since moved uh, into, I think, now Kansas City. Um, I'm still in Atlanta. But uh, I had the very wonderful pleasure of learning about jobs to be done, actually, through Claire. And seeing her work, especially her consulting practice and her marketing work, and seeing how she leveraged jobs to be done, it was just such a light bulb moment for me that I thought, oh my gosh, like this is one really cool. And two, it's just so clear how effective it is when it comes to the work that we marketers do. So I learned it from another marketer, really. And then once I got introduced to it, I dove pretty much just all in. And I'm still learning things about jobs to be done even today, things I had mm. no clue about, um, ironically enough, from other marketers. And then eventually a little bit from some of like the champions of jobs to be done, like the early founders of it, like Bob Moesta. Mm. But uh, but yeah, that's how I got introduced to it. Claire's awesome. I'm going to have her on the show as well. <laughs> it's just yeah. to talk about her experience as well. It's cool that you came across this. Uh, for people who might not be familiar with this, Jobs to be done is traditionally a product um, framework that helps product teams build better products. How has it helped you? Uh, how can it help marketers like be better at marketing, be better <laughs> essentially at their their jobs uh, uh, with the Jobs to be done framework? Just to break down what Jobs to be done is. So 
jobs to be done, it's it's an approach. It's an approach to thinking strategically. And what it basically says is customers are ultimately hiring uh, products for a particular job. There is some progress in the world that they want to make, and they buy certain products and services to help them make that progress. When we apply that to product, usually it's in the context of what kind of product should we build uh, and how can we help? Like, what, what are customers trying to achieve by hiring this product? And therefore, what should we build? How do we make it better? How do we help complete their job better? When we apply it to marketing, Jobs to be done can take many, many different avenues and like the possibilities are truly endless. Everything from how can we make it really clear that uh, the the copy or the messaging that we're leveraging it indicates to the customer that if you want to buy this product, it's going to help you accomplish your job. So we get into positioning messaging right there of what progress is the customer trying to make and how do we clearly communicate that? And then it also gets into even um, how should we structure our website? How should we think about structuring our onboarding emails, our activation experiences, and then all the way down to how do we make sure that this product really clearly stands out in the market? So we get into go-to-market activities. Of course, that includes things like positioning, but it also includes things like what are our talk tracks? What's our sales deck? Um, how do we pitch? I mean, it, it the opportunities truly are endless. And I know for us, we use jobs to be done in all of those contexts, but I think the I think the the key piece of this though is when you really understand what customers are actually trying to achieve with with like buying the product, whatever it is. When you understand that, you can then reverse engineer all the things getting in the way for the customer of that. So now we get into customer journey mapping and understanding the full customer experience and all the little tiny things that get in the way of customers making that progress, in addition to all the things that propel them forward. And I know in our work, so much of our work uh, on the Demand Maven consultancy side has to do with understanding clients' customers better than the client and then understanding what are all the things that either um, propel a customer forward into buying versus pulling them away. And this is this is the uh, the secret sauce, much easier said than done. But when you really understand that, you can get into the psychology of the buying process. And that's really powerful for marketers. I, I love how you put it that, you know, it's about understanding the journey uh, and trying to understand what is might be limiting uh, and blocking people from making the purchase of that particular product. And often it's in the mindset. And you mentioned psychology. You've probably seen this multiple times over and over again like what are some common like those those blockers that you've seen uh and it could be them confused because they don't understand exactly what the product is because the positioning isn't clear what are some common blockers that you've seen working with different types of businesses uh yourself and with the team at uh, your team at demand maven oh my gosh uh the list is truly endless <laughs> But if I had to start with a couple, I would say the most, the top two most common blockers that we see for customers in terms of buying a product is, you, you, you actually already said it, um, they, they really don't understand the value. And even more specifically, they don't understand the value in the context that they're in. And that's really what Jobs to be Done is all about. Jobs to be Done is all about what is the context upon which customers buy and make decisions and um, decide okay, like this is, I'm hiring this product for this specific job within this specific context. And 
a lot of, this is so true for a lot of early stage SaaS companies and software companies, but um, a lot of the times they don't really fully understand the complete context of why a customer is buying or the process upon which they are going through buying. And therefore, so they might have an inkling of what the job is, but they don't maybe understand like the full context. And so we see this on the website. Uh, customers will come to the website, read through the homepage, get confused because they're not, they're like, okay, like this looks the same as like other competitors or they really can't tell the difference. For uh, I'm going to give you an example. If you were to go pull up the top five most common project management platforms, right. so like Asana, Trello, ClickUp, they're all going to kind of read the same. Um, some of these actually might have, you know, taken a page from the book of jobs and kind of, you know, a differentiated a little bit. But the homepage is, you know, if, if you've got a customer that's comparing options and if it all looks the same, reads the same, has the same words, they can't really tell. So then the question really then becomes, okay, the second part that I mentioned earlier, which is, okay, but like, if these are all relatively the same, like, what's the exact context that I would buy this versus this? And this is kind of where we get into the positioning conundrum and also messaging. So what they do is they, they go and they click through features pages and they're trying to like figure it out. They might actually go to pricing because sometimes pricing can actually tell a customer, indicate a customer, like, how should I compare or how should I think about this solution in the context that I'm buying? And if you're comparing with spreadsheets, then it's really all about like, okay, how do I, like, they're looking for anchor points. And the website is like the first offender, I would say, especially if it's not very well done. Um, but this is like one of the very big areas that can be improved. The KPI to improve that though, like usually it's um, website visit to trial or demo booking rate. And so if that KPI is relatively healthy, um, and I'm going to say relatively healthy as in like, it's truly relative. Uh, benchmarks are great, but they're also kind of dangerous. <laughs> but uh, the other area I would say is onboarding and activation. Uh, and just in such like the biggest way, because when a customer comes into a product and they have a very clear job, which nine times out of 10 they do, um, and it it is not clear to them how the product helps them accomplish that job, it's already not going to be a paying customer. Like they're already not going to actually become a customer because they're having to do a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of like mental work to try to figure out like what this is and what it does and how it helps them and like what they should do next. And onboarding is usually the next best opportunity that we find to, um, uh, to improve those blockers. So whenever we work with a company, um, our, our first places that we check are, okay, does, does the website do its job? Is the positioning and also therefore the messaging, are those two things clear? And then the really the third thing we look at is what does the sign up and onboarding activation experience look like? And then from there, I mean, we can get into more granular things. We can also expand it out into like retention, expansion revenue. Maybe a SaaS company is killing it and they're like, what are we missing? Like, what are we not doing? And finding new growth opportunities is where we kind of go into that work and we start looking at, okay, well, if everything is relatively like working well, what are some of the other opportunities that you might have missed? And we, you know, we get into other details there of is there expansion, revenue opportunities, retention, things like that. But I would say those are the first like three bases that we analyze and that we cover. And sometimes uh, all three of those are jacked up and we got to like address all of them. <laughs> and then sometimes it's, it's maybe just like a couple of things, but there's more opportunity in other areas. And so that's kind of what our work is. I totally agree. Onboarding, yeah, <laughs> super important. Uh, yeah, I, you've got I, a book I on this. <laughs> I had a book on that. I didn't want to plug it. Uh, I don't want to fe feel weird <laughs> about that. But thank you. Uh, essentially, that I I love how I totally agree with you. I like positioning messaging falls uh, 
flows directly into onboarding activation. And if, if they don't get that right first, then uh, then none of that later down funnel stuff happens uh, really well as well. I love that how you're also like taking a look at the the, the whole funnel and not just like, you know, let's let's get you signups. You're okay. Are those signups converting, which is super cool. Uh, I love hearing this, uh, that you're taking a look at that, you're, you and your team. I, I want to talk a little bit about something you said earlier uh, around that you and your team, your goal is to understand the client's customers better than the client themselves. I'm like, wow, that's really, uh, it really tells a lot because, you know, no founder would admit that, oh, uh, they know my customer better <laughs> just because like maybe it's ego. Maybe it's like, oh, I'm the one who started this company here. But can you talk a little bit about about that? Like how how do you how do you do that? You actually talk to customers for for them uh, and uh, you do surveys like what, what is your approach to, quote unquote, knowing the client's customers better than they do? Okay, so this kind of breaks down into the different types of research of qualitative research and then quantitative research. So yes, we a core part of our project is to run customer interviews. It can also be audience interviews. Maybe they're not actually customers, uh, but they fit the target market profile and they potentially could be customers, but they've never heard of your product or whatever it is. And then yes, we do also run surveys, both website surveys and also um, uh, like actual just like conducted surveys to to customer bases. And when it comes to the qualitative side, meaning understanding, um, you know, the, the non-numbers piece, it really comes down to the types of questions that we're asking. So most founders we find, now I'm not going to say all of them. There are some founders who are like in the jobs to be done world and they get it and they're like, yep, I know exactly how to take this and apply it to the marketing perspective. And I would say that's a rare breed. And they're very awesome when we do find those people. Um, but I would say most founders tend to ask questions that are purely related to the product. What kind of features do you like? What don't you like? What about the product can we change? Um, they might understand the problems that they're experiencing or that the customer is experiencing around like what drove them to actually buy the product or at least search for a solution. But they might not be thinking about all of the other aspects of, well, what did you compare it to? Why did you choose this one? Um how long did it take you to make this decision? How, like, what was the process? So like, you know, walk me through the full process. Like, when did you know that you had a problem? And then what were some of the things that you tried along the way? Why didn't those things work? And then why did you land on this? And this is where we get into competitive differentiators, positioning in the market. Um, like all of those questions really cover those aspects of, of how we think about um, really understanding the customer. But then there's the other side of it too, of, what are some of the behaviors that they might have just from like a personal perspective of like, where do they hang out online when they want to find more or when, when they want to learn more about their industry, where do they go? What are some of the places that they turn to whenever they need help? Um, what's their preferred method of content like consumption? Are they listeners, readers, watchers? Like what does their behavior look like outside of that? Mm -hmm. And those are the kinds of it's like somewhat anecdotal, but also just like purely experiential things. Uh, and then, you know, then there's also the aspect of like when it comes to onboarding, walk me through how you figured out how to use this product and just kind of like see like how they like walk through it. Um, we get into a little bit of like UX research into this, but we also get into just like the pure qualitative side of the full customer journey. And then there's also like, tell me about your life. What's your what's your life like? Um, 
what's your job or, you know, what, like, what do you do all day? And these are the kinds of questions I think most teams skip because they kind of feel like Mm. they don't need it or they, or like it's prying or um, they're not sure like how it connects the dots and how it tells a larger story. But a lot of the times whenever we work with clients and if the founder and also the team, if they're super duper engaged and they are like as soon as we analyze an interview or we share like a recording, they're on it, like they're listening to it. A lot of the times they come back and they say, wow, like you asked questions we never would have thought to ask, but also we heard responses that we were not expecting. <laughs> and there are also responses that they are expecting. So some, I would say most teams, generally speaking, have a, I'd say most people have like a, a pretty like fundamental understanding of the customer, but there are some teams out there who don't at all. Like they literally never talk to a customer ever. And those are the teams that obviously we love to come in and help. Um, and then for those who have a baseline understanding but want to get at something more, we're, we're usually able to do the digging. That's the qualitative side. So the quantitative side gets into the analysis of every single interview. And we take it a step further by once we conduct interviews, surveys, whatever it is, we actually aggregate all that data into a single database and we analyze it. And we, we do the analysis piece um, one, because it's a step that I think most marketers and teams skip. They'll do the interviews, but sometimes they don't actually like take a step back and they say, okay, what's the overall trend and make it as data-driven as possible? And this is where a lot of teams can be led, uh, they can be led um, astray because it feels like they heard a trend throughout the interviews, but when they actually map it out and analyze it, they find that there was actually something else. And so um, it's it's really tempting to to do interviews and then just be like, oh, okay, I know what the answers are. Um, but then it's also uh, equally tempting to, um, you know, have all that data and to just like totally ignore it. And our job is to really take it through the full process of interviews, analysis, and then insight extraction. And then once we extract insights, we can take that and apply it to you know any recommendations that we have around growth. Before we continue, I want to thank those who made this video possible, 42 Agency. Now, when you are in scale-up mode and you have KPIs to hit, the pressure is on to deliver demos and signups. And it's a lot to handle. Demand gen, email sequences, rev ops, and even more. That's where 42 Agency, founded by my good friend, Camille Rexton, can help you. They're a strategic partner that's helped B2B SaaS companies like ProfitWell, Teamworks, Sprout Social, and HubDoc build a predictable revenue engine. If you're looking for performance experts and creatives to solve your marketing problems at a fraction of the cost of in-house, look no further. Go to 42agency.com to talk to a strategist to learn how you can build a high-efficiency revenue engine now. You can find that link in the description below. Let's jump back in. And I love how... All of that questions is really, you mentioned it earlier about understanding the context that the buyer is trying to, you know, what are the problems? Do they, what triggered them to start looking to make the purchase? So you're like all those, it sounds, it sounds like it's prime, but it really is about understanding the context. Like what, what are they doing? What, what was the problem they face? Who, what was happening and, and all that stuff. Thank you for sharing that. I really love how you really went into the de- detail there. Can you share a, a case study here? I, I believe you have a case study that you walk through this whole process uh, with one of your clients that actually has 10x their growth, which is uh, amazing. And you know, you've been you and your team have been working with them for uh, several years now. Can you share that that story of um, this yeah. whole job to be done applied so people can hear uh, the the result of all of this this beautiful and uh, and hard work as well? 
I, I love a good growth story, especially when there's context applied. So um, so the context for this story is we have been working with a, uh, they're a vacation rental platform company. So they're a SaaS. Uh, I would say they are, I would, they're, they're in the earlier stages. So we're just going to say that they're less than, um, they're less than 10 million uh, in ARR. And this vacation rental software company, uh, I would, I mean, it's, it's, it's what you would expect in terms of SaaS, software as a service. There are vacation rental companies that need a platform to manage their listings, manage their prices, rates, channels, managing all the things. And uh, at the time, when we first started working with this company, uh, vacation rental software company, they they were already growing, but they they hired us because they were like, you know, like we're kind of like we're kind of killing it. Let's like, we want to keep killing it like across all the you know across all opportunities. And then so funny because right when uh, we started working together. They, uh, COVID hit, uh, the pandemonium panorama, whatever you want to call it, COVID hit. And when travel stopped, or at least dramatically slowed down, I think a lot of countries closed down around the world. When travel stopped, the vacation rental companies, uh, my clients, customers, started freaking out because travel's not happening, which means that you know they've got to figure out how they're going to stay afloat because they're a vacation rental company. I think like Airbnbs or you know that kind of, that kind of world. And so my client also kind of starts freaking out because if the vacation rental companies are freaking out, they're looking to cut. And um, the CEO founder of uh, of the company that I worked with and am still working with, uh, I I commend him a lot because he actually there was like an initial panic, but then there was a very quick like resolve to mitigate churn as much as possible. And they worked super hard to do that, and they did a great job. But what was interesting was. As we start working together, the narrative at, was at first, man, we're growing so much, let's keep growing, to how do we survive and also plant seeds for future growth? <laughs> so so my work really um, is the same process. We go through the same process for pretty much every single like large strategic engagement. Uh, but I would say research and jobs to be done is at the core of pretty much anything and everything that we do, even when we do paid acquisition, for example. But when we started, my number one strategic question to answer was, how has the current market implication changed the expectations of potential customers, both today and then also future? So we go through the research process, talking to customers, understanding their absolute panic and also grief, um, but also understanding their hopes, their dreams, their wishes, and then also really understanding why did they choose this particular product? How did they go about the process of choosing this product? And then also, what what really drove them to this out of all of the and like by the way I forgot to mention the vacation model software space. Um, there's like there's dozens of platforms. There's dozens. It's just like project management. There's literally dozens of tools out there, and they all look and kind of feel the same, but they all have very different pricing models, and they also have very different, uh, I guess like like really positioning and there's many different areas that that a platform can go in and really you know exceed at and so my job was kind of figuring out okay why 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 these customers why this product and then why this product amongst all the other products and what we came away with was we had well first we heard a lot of really awesome feedback um even just going through this process like you just learn so much and you also especially when it's a third party doing the research 
they told us things that they've never told <laughs> the client, um, which is also great because, you know, then the client like really gets like, okay, like I'm getting honest feedback here. But we learned that people would often choose my client's product um, third or fourth. So they would try like three to four other products and then they would choose my client uh, sometimes like third, fourth, like basically like dead last, uh, if, if I'm being honest. And sometimes they would even like sign to the first or second product that they tried, realize it was crap, try another one, realize it was crap, and then get to my client's product and be like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing I've ever used. It's like the best in the market. It's amazing. But it was just wild because we learned that this platform was like at the bottom of people's lists. And we were like, why? We also learned that uh, we we heard this verbatim in interviews. And we we learned that people were choosing other competitors because their, quote, marketing was prettier. And it kind of blew our minds, but also didn't blow my mind because as a marketer, I'm like, I, right. you know, there are some people, there are just some certain industries where brand really does matter. Mm. Um, I think a lot of SaaS companies, you know, I have my own personal feelings about brand and investing in brand in that I really don't <laughs> until like you're way more at scale. I feel like scaled right. companies, yeah, do it, do brand. But there are some industries where brand like really, really matters. And it seemed like more and more this was an industry or a market where brand kind of mattered. And what we literally heard verbatim, like, I, I didn't choose you guys because you weren't as pretty as the other ones. And so it was like kind of a, it was awesome. And at the same exact time, like a big slap in the face. So, but, and we learned like a bunch of other things too. Like the way that customers viewed the market had fundamentally changed and also what they needed from the product also had changed. And there was a gap because my client was going to market as, this particular platform, like it's so easy to use, and there's all these features. If you've ever heard April Dunford talk, she talks about the wind tunnel of features. And like when I tell you, that's exactly what my client was doing. That's um, like like to the T. And we talked about like, oh, it's so easy, and like it's easy to switch to you know to us. And I like, after conducting the interviews, it was just so clear that the overarching trend, even analyzing this like on a data driven level. It was just so clear that we needed to focus on entirely different value propositions. People cared about reliability. They cared about um, not just features, but features that enabled productivity. Um, they didn't care that it was easy to switch. They wanted to know that this was going to be the platform for them and that they wouldn't have to switch. And, uh, and, and that was really more like to the client as opposed to away from the client. Um, but they like people didn't really generally care about, oh, yeah, it's easy for me to jump ship. Uh, it was much more like, I need to know that this is going to be the thing and I don't have to look again. And like, I don't, you know, don't really care if it's easy to get into the product. But yeah, it was, it was, it was just so eye opening. And so we overhauled the website. We updated the look and feel. We also took a deep, like hard look at onboarding activation. And I'm going to be honest, we are still looking at activation and onboarding. It's an ongoing experiment. It never ends. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure actually if you feel that way too, Ramley, but um, I agree. it, like it never just stays the same and like you forget about it and you walk away. <laughs> you know, we are still adjusting it and changing it and experimenting. And we we adjusted the positioning and the messaging entirely. And then um, there were some other activities too. So of course, like they the the team really focused on stabilizing the product, making sure that when it came, like when everything came back, like travel and all the things, they would be ready. And uh, there were some other like feature improvements, feature additions. So I'm not going to say like it was all of our work, but but through this very big effort, I mean, we saw trials triple 
we saw a 20% lift in activation rate overall. And I think my, my favorite stat in the first round was a 4X lift in growth. And, you know, obviously, like, there was a lot that went into that. So then the panorama happens, right? And we're in the middle of it. And I think at this rate, countries are opening back up. Travel is coming back. We do another round. So it's been about a year at this point. I've, I've been working with this company for two years now. So it's been about a year. And we do another round. And we find that it's changed again. But it's changed in a slightly different way. Uh, it's changed in a way where people are still looking for generally the same value props. But there's like, we see this with jobs to be done a lot where customers will come to a company with a specific job in mind. But once they have that job fulfilled, they evolve. And usually there's one, two, sometimes even three other jobs that they're hoping to accomplish. And if a, if a customer comes to a product with a job, but they actually have like five other jobs that you just didn't hear about or know about. Um, what happens sometimes is they have a they have one job satisfied by a product, and then they buy another product to hoping to satisfy some other jobs, and then they end up with like three or four products, and then they're like, "Wait, can I just get one that like does it all?" <laughs> and that's what we were hearing. So we were hearing people coming to my client's product with this goal of having several, like they have several jobs actually, and also existing customers were evolving into new jobs. And so then really the growth work became all around what are the new jobs that we want to make sure that we satisfy? And then how do we internalize that at a like at a company level, which this is not a very large team, but um, it, it, it was definitely a scenario where after analyzing the research, it was just really clear, like, oh my gosh, like we actually have, like there's other jobs that we have to think about. And so now the growth story for this particular company is really... Um, we're kind of expanding out into how do we make sure that our main job is is as streamlined as it possibly can be, which our job statements have changed over time. Uh, job statements meaning like this is the story that kind of people have whenever they come to the product. They have evolved over time and they haven't stayed the same. And we're also finding like new job stories and like new job statements. Um, so then... Over the next year, a lot of that work had become into, had had moved into expanding into new channels, testing different things, continuing to tinker with onboarding activation because it is like it just really does like you can't just like set it and forget it, especially if you're attracting more types of customers. And then um, internal operations actually, which is a growth lever, I think a lot of companies forget about, but internal ops is like it's it's another secret lever to pull, believe it or not, and. Uh, that resulted in the next 6x. So so now we're at 10x, which is really cool. So it took 2 years to do 10x, which I know like you know a lot of a lot of teams rave about like the oh, 10x in 1 year, but I think for this uh I guess they I guess they are technically lightly funded. I say lightly funded. I think they're like indie funded if I'm not mistaken, but it was only recently. Um but they they have figured out how to make it work with their existing resources and any any bootstrap team that gets more than 2x growth, that's like a huge win. I don't know if people realize that or not, but more than 2x for a bootstrap team, wow, like incredible, truly. But I would I would say any growth is still amazing. But um more than 2x, that's like that's impressive. <laughs> and 10x is incredible and remarkable. Honestly. Yeah. Well, thank you. Wow, that's a great story of how the whole process you talked about earlier applied. You applied it to this particular uh, company, this client, and really saw uh, growth even through uh, you know a, a once in a lifetime experience through uh, the <laughs> pandemic. Hopefully, you know, like last crossing our fingers. 
Right, yes. Crossing our fingers, knocking, you know, knocking on wood that is uh won't you know, this is once in a lifetime. <laughs> in our lifetime. Uh or any lifetime. Uh I don't wanna think about the future at all with that, <laughs> but it's glad to see growth even through through that. Um, especially for uh vacation rental, which you know saw a dramatic um impact uh with yeah. that. So I want to shift gears now uh, and talk a, little, a bit about your career. Um, part of this is like hearing and learning from really like world-class marketers and you, you've been in marketing for, for 10 years and more. Can you share uh, a power-up, something that's helped you in your career uh, evolve uh, and grow as a marketer and become this CEO of Demand Maven and, you know, like board member of Moss and, you know, a highly sought after um, a keynote speaker. Uh, what what was something that's helped you through through this career progression of yours so far? The the thing that comes to mind has to be avoiding as much as you possibly can the shiny object. So we call it bright shiny object syndrome (BSO). There's other there's other phrases for it, but when it comes to BSOs, I. I am totally guilty. I'm just going to come out right out and say, like, I'm super guilty of a BSO. What I think has helped me the most in my career ha- has been acknowledging the BSO. It's kind of like acknowledging a craving, but then just like letting it fade. <laughs> um, like you're really craving something that you know is absolutely terrible for you, but but and is like going to cause distractions. But like you just let it pass. Like you just like you acknowledge it and you honor it. And you're like, thank you, craving for reminding me that I'm alive. And then you just let it go. And that's kind of how I feel about a lot of BSOs. There are some BSOs that I think are certainly, you know, titillating and, and exciting. But what I've learned is that it's so rare. We're, we're talking like maybe one out of 50 times a, a bright, shiny object is actually worth your time and your effort. And what I mean by that is um, there's always going to be new channels. There's mm-hmm. always going to be new tactics. There's always going right. to be new cool things that come along that you can't possibly miss. Um, I think, you know, I, I'm a huge believer in Jobs to Be Done and I will always spread the gospel, but even Jobs to Be Done might be a little bit, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a BSO though. That's just me being biased. Um, but there are tons of them. And what I have learned in my career is that it's so rare that they ever actually pay off. And also when when a bright, shiny object comes to your table, so... Maybe a sales leader has like this wild, crazy idea that you can't possibly miss. Or more often than not, the CEO comes to your table and is like, we need to run this campaign right now because I've dreamt about it and I wrote it like on a piece of toilet paper last night and I woke up this morning and I had to like, had to give it to you to like execute the next day. Um, That's a bright, shiny object. And what I have learned is how to manage them as, uh, as politely as possible, which is... If the answer is yes, it's not right now. And if it's not right now, it's because we have a very data-driven way to show that uh, this isn't going to be worth our effort of switching all of our gears over to your BSO. And managing your own BSOs in addition to other people's BSOs is super exhausting work. But honestly, that is like, like if you're a marketing manager or a marketing coordinator and you're dreaming of becoming a VP of marketing or a CMO, that is like the level that you're going to have to get to. I actually have someone on my team who her dream is to be a CMO. And I, I, I love that dream. One of her greatest uh, opportunities for growth is to learn how to say no to BSOs, specifically from clients. Uh, and 
it and like she wants to say yes to every BSO. And the the truth is that there's no energy. There's like there's not enough energy in the world to do all of them, right? And if you're going to switch gears entirely, it like there needs to be a pretty factual or at least as confident of a correlation you can make to it being worth it. <laughs> uh, because if it's 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 going to feel very frustrating to constantly jump to every new BSO and make no progress. Um, so it's the same thing with cravings and also the same thing with endless to-do lists. Oh, yeah, I can fit that extra thing in. And then you get two things done out of the list of 20. And then you're like, oh, no, I'm a failure because I only got two things done. But in reality, most of us can only handle two to three things a day anyway. So, you know, it's the same vibe. Um, but that even when I was like early, early in my career, I I got promoted because I learned how to say no. <laughs> Seriously, uh, because I I kept my v, uh, chief of sales, I guess, slash co-founder in check. And that was literally my job. <laughs> that and to make sure the marketing projects were protected. And right. if I could do that, and don't get me wrong, I love my boss, um, but he was chaos. And so I had to, if I could just manage his chaos in as loving and as fair of a way as I possibly could, but also firmly, we were going to make progress. And that was really, that was ultimately how I ended up getting promoted and uh, into the roles that I'm in today. That's so good. BSO. I'm not sure if you tweeted about this or you have a blog post, but that is one of the terms that uh, is instantly coinable and it's uh you know something that you can own and <laughs> I'm gonna start using that BSO and it's uh, coined by Asia and you've heard it here <laughs> first. That's right. <laughs> I love it. And the other thing about pushing back on BSOs is so it's so good. I just I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna be saying it all day. <laughs> BSO, hey Joanna, BSO. Is that it? It it helps people respect you. Uh, because you know when they understand they hire you in marketing because you know marketing hopefully better than the sales leader the sales is great great at sales and you pushing back helps them you know see, see that you're you know you know your stuff and that you have a strategy in place and that it, their VSO will derail derail your your plans and you know there's there's ways to be gentle of course um but yes totally like that's what you're really saying but you're gonna add it to the stack and you know every quarter you're gonna analyze the stack and see you know which of these ideas can we add to the plate mm. and a lot of them aren't ever gonna get added <laughs> uh but yeah <laughs> that's how i'd approach that uh, one final question before we get into the wrap up it's around uh, an advice you would give to your younger self a younger uh, version of Asia starting out in marketing. <laughs> uh, what would you? What would be your advice to your younger self if you can? If you can travel back in time and send a few pieces of advice. I think the thing I would I would share to my younger self is, and I actually think I'm going to change my answer from when we talked <laughs> last. Uh, but I I would have to say that. I would just tell her that her self-worth is not tied to the results that she does or does not achieve. And therefore, because her self-worth is not attached to that, it is not defined by that, it also means that's true for pretty much everything in life that, uh, this is so cliche, but I actually do kind of believe in it. Um, 
we are not human doings. We are human beings. And I think especially in startup and SaaS world, it's so easy to get caught up in how much you're able to execute and also therefore how much you're able to achieve. And it's so easy to get wrapped up in those achievements as being definitions of yourself. But what I've been learning from therapy is attaching your self-worth to your achievements is totally a coping mechanism for something much deeper, in addition to can be potentially harmful because what happens when you stop achieving, your life falls apart and is a mess and you feel lower than low. And I've definitely been in scenarios where that has completely impacted I've I've certainly been in that scenario. And I, I guess like the super quick story I can give is my very first startup role, I I was working at a company that I, I had I had just joined and I think it was like my first day, or maybe it was my second day, I learned that we needed to generate six hundred thousand in revenue. Wow. That was the stretch goal. The the normal goal, the main goal was three hundred K. And I found out that uh, we had two months to do it. So I joined in December and we needed to generate 600K by February, end of February. We needed to do this with zero budget, uh, a team of two, and a whole bunch of others, like a whole bunch of other contingencies. Like, for example, I learned like in September, like way before I actually joined, there was a contract that was signed that said that if we didn't make this amount of revenue for like a conference that they were running, that um, we would have to pay out the remainder. And so if we didn't make 300K in like ticket sales, we would have to pay out um, the remainder of whatever that was to this other company that we were partnering with at the time, whatever. Uh, but I, I learned that like this revenue goal basically came out of some agreement or contract that they had signed before. And so, so I also learned there was no strategy for doing this. They had never done it before. <laughs> and there, there was literally no foundation for this goal to be realistic. And me being young and naive, I thought, oh, this is normal, right? Like, this is how startups work, you know? Uh, but the more that I uncovered things, the more that I learned that there really was no plan, there was no strategy. The plan was to, uh, it was just basically to pray and to hope and pray that, like, this would come to fruition. And I remember the more that I raised concern the more I was told, it's just because you don't believe enough. It's just because you don't, it's like, you're the problem. Like, you're just not doing enough. You're not working hard enough. You don't believe. And that's why this isn't going to happen. And like, um, but if you believed more Asia, we could reach this goal. And we would get text messages like in the middle of the night. Um, it's a super small team. So there's like only another one person. But I remember getting like text messages about how like we really needed to hit this goal because if we didn't, like bad things would happen. And needless to say, like, I think we made 86K. Uh, we did not meet the goal like at all. And in two months, 86K, I was like, you know, I'm not too, I'm actually not too mad about that. But it was, it was such a whirlwind of, I mean, it really was unmanaged chaos, but it was, it was like damaging chaos. It was, was the problem. It wasn't like the kind of chaos that feels exciting and, or like encourages, encourages you to stretch or to grow. It was the kind of chaos that was like damaging. And I didn't know that at the time. I thought that this was normal. So I I went into my next role with a lot of fear, anxiety. I mean, it was FUD for, you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And I, I thought it was normal. And I thought 
this was just how it was. And I also, I attached myself to the end result of, man, I didn't make 600K, but I made 87. Um, and I, I felt like a total failure. I'm going to be super honest. But what I've learned is you really can't attach yourself to those kinds of things in the end. Because if you don't have the full context and knowing what I know now, hindsight's twenty twenty. Actually, that's not true. I don't believe in that anymore. But at least in that moment, hindsight was twenty twenty. <laughs> and looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, that was so not your fault. There were like, that wasn't your fault at all. And also, even if it were, the, the circumstances upon which you needed to accomplish that were just so unrealistic. It just wasn't even, there's no way it could have happened. And uh, I, it took me a long time and a lot of therapy, but I no longer take responsibility for that. And, but, but that's, that's why I, I tell that story because that's definitely one of my first experiences. I'm super thrilled to say it is not the norm. I've worked for other incredible SaaS companies that have completely different cultures and environments and expectations that are far more realistic and also don't do that to their marketers. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's it was a hard lesson learned, but I'm glad I learned it. And it's a story I don't tell often, but I'm happy to share it, you know, with others because I feel like I feel like a lot of us have a similar story of like just complete and total just craziness when it comes to marketing. Uh and and also knowing that there's light on the other end of the tunnel, that there are places that that, you know, do respect the marketer and also, you know, don't treat people super crazy. And uh, it was a crazy experience. I'm glad it happened, though. Like, I wouldn't trade it if that makes any sense. Like, I'm I grew a lot as a person. And uh, that's that's part of why I give that advice. That is such a good piece of advice. I, I think you're right. Just based on the marketers I've talked to, they have face not not the same experience, but a similar experience where founders would put undue pressure, uh, and even in my in my experience, uh, scream scream at the the marketing team uh, in front of everybody, and I feel like yeah. that needs to be more marketers need to hear this advice. Uh, and th- really, thank you for for sharing for sharing this. And as we wrap up, one final question: Well, where where you know you have such a honest and transparent and authentic vibe about you and and i think thank you for that if people wanted to like just reach out um where can people find you online uh on twitter uh if it's the joke is if it still exists on linkedin <laughs> uh anywhere where, where do you want to send people to who are tuning into this that can connect with you and connect with uh, the man maven team as well <laughs> that's right and in an upper um all right so gonna say you can find me on mastodon no i'm just kidding i mean you technically can okay so twitter i still you know i have so many feelings but i won't share them now um you can still find me on twitter at asia arangio and my dms are open if there's any you know i'm so happy to answer any questions anyone has and or even if it's just you know to trade war stories i'm super down and then uh, yes linkedin i would say if you send a LinkedIn connection request, just make sure to add that you listen to this podcast. So that way I know, because I literally get hundreds of connection requests mm. every day. I never know who is who. Um, but yes, you can also totally find me on LinkedIn. And there's also the website, the blog. You know, we've kind of been quiet over the last couple of years in terms of content. I do a lot of speaking. I appear on podcasts. But when it comes to Demand Maven's own content, we've been a little quiet. Uh, we do have a podcast. We also have a blog. Those are going to mm. come back uh, 2023 is what we're planning for. 
But um, in the meantime, though, you can definitely find me on socials. And yes, you can technically find me on Mastodon. I hope you got as much from my conversation with Isha as I did. It's always fun geeking out about the JobSuit.com framework with anyone. I can do it for days. Now follow Asia on LinkedIn and Twitter and check out Demand Maven at demandmaven.io. You can find those links in the show notes and description. Thank you to Asia for being on the show. If you enjoyed this episode, you'd love the Marketing Power-Ups newsletter. I share the actionable takeaways and break down the frameworks of world-class marketers. You can go to marketingpowerups.com to subscribe and you'll instantly unlock the three best frameworks that top marketers use to hit their KPIs consistently and wow their colleagues. I want to say thank you to you for listening and please like and follow Marketing Power-Ups on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. If you feel like extra generous, kind of leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave a comment on YouTube. It goes a long way in others finding out about Marketing Power-Ups. Thanks to Mary Solden for creating the artwork and design and thank you to Faisal Kaigo for editing the intro video. And of course, thank you for listening. That's all for now. Have a powered up day. Marketing Power-Ups. Until the next episode.